0: Malt House Games Podcast, episode number 111. Today, we go back in time and take a look at, you guessed it, fast food franchises. I had to do it. Because <laughs> <laughs> there, there's an equalizer setting for old-timey radio, and I was like, yes, please.
1: Oh my goodness, I knew that something was up because Dalton was really talkative, <laughs> really giddy. Usually in like the 30 seconds of silence, he's like sitting there looking a little irritated, like ready for it to go, trying not to clear his throat. But this time he was like tapping and shaking back and forth. I was like, oh, my God, something's going to happen. And sure enough, I
0: knew you would like it. I couldn't find great like background music for it. And the one that I did find, I had to like sign up to be able to download. It wasn't from my normal uh, uh, copyright free sources. So I didn't put any music to it. But I just I think that's fun because that's what I think of for the game today, which we'll get to.
1: I think we should do the whole episode like that.
0: No, that would be annoying. <laughs> no, wouldn't. It takes out so like it takes out so much vibrancy of a voice. It really does. You heard it. It's like hollow. It's so strange, but that's okay. Anyway, welcome to the Malt House Games podcast. My name is Delton. I'll be your host today. With me, as usual, is my lovely wife and yellow player, Haley. Hello. We are a podcast all about board games, card games, tabletop games, role playing games, things of that sort. And we also like to have a drink on the show. And today it is back to beer. I think the first time
1: to have, is it the first time they have beer this year? No. Uh, no, we had one last year. We episode. had the
0: special Ouroboros, right? Yeah,
1: we had the special Ouroboros one where we talked about uh, not waiting for a special occasion, making yes. a special
0: occasion. You are correct. Uh, well, this time, uh, the first beer for this episode of our two is Migrating Coconuts from Roughtail Brewing Co. We have a lot of Roughtail here. This is an a imperial porter made with coconut and vanilla. It is a nutty, Luscious knee, so migrating coconuts is a reference, uh, along with the I think it's a sparrow that's carrying it. Um, that is a reference to
1: Monty Python, Monty Python
0: and the Holy uh, Quest for the Holy Grail, or and the Holy Grail. I can never remember the full title, but Monty Python's Holy Grail. Um, so yes, and it has knee on there, and it's the 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 little sparrow guy carrying the coconut. It's pretty great. Uh, but this is, like I said, Imperial Stout. Sorry, Imperial Porter. Coconut and vanilla comes in. at What was the percentage? 7.8. 7.8%. 7.
1: And speaking of migrating, uh, Delt and I have a tradition that whenever it snows, whenever we get a snow day here in Edmond, which is very rare, we maybe get like maybe three days of snow a year, like actual snow days. Uh, we have a tradition to where anytime we get a snow day, we hike in the snow to the liquor store and get a new beer. And so that's what we did today. So we got about... Three or four inches of snow last night, which basically means Oklahoma is shut down for the next three days. Yep. And so, uh, because we, I mean, I can't drive in it, but uh, we walked to the liquor store. We braved the ice because there is a about a quarter inch sheet of ice underneath the snow. Yep. And we got this beer for you. So, Delton walked a mile uphill. Both ways in the snow <laughs> to make sure there that you, you had a beer for us to drink on this episode. We did this for you.
0: The beers in the fridge are we have two non alcoholic St. Pauli girls that are Zacks, and we keep those around so when him and Sarah come over, he can have his non alcoholic beer, and I don't have to. He doesn't have to worry about going and getting unless he wants more than two or however many's left. We've got like a, a cheap at like a bush apple from Cody, and then I think we have like. Two of our Christmas beers left, like two single cans. And I've got a Chimay Blue that I've had on here and talked about before. So we're basically out of anything new. And I was like, we need to get something for this episode of the podcast. We're scraping the bottom of the barrel in the house.
1: So again, we did this for you. Two miles uphill in the snow and the freezing rain Yep. for you.
0: It works out. This porter is... Super, super dark, but it doesn't have the thickness of a stout, which I always find that to be the case with porters.
1: Mm. It smells wonderful. You can smell the coconut. Mm.
0: It's very light. Wow. You get a little vanilla.
1: It tastes like, you know, like a vanilla rum, but without the alcohol aftertaste.
0: Kind of, yeah, but not as vanilla-y. Like the vanilla is nice and toned.
1: I feel like I taste a lot of vanilla, but not like a, a burning cheap vanilla. It's like a... Like a legit vanilla, like a vanilla bean almost.
0: It's really good. It's, it's not, I'm surprised how crisp it is. Like, I always look at a porter and I expect a stout every time. And then I drink it and I'm surprised at how much I like porters every time.
1: As evidenced by the 7.8% beer already almost being gone from both of our glasses, I say this is very drinkable.
0: This is really good. Rough Tail always does good stuff. We talk about them being right down the road. Um, so, yeah, highly check out, highly recommend that you should check out Tail Brewing Co. if you can get it. And this is Migrating Coconuts. That's a good beer.
1: So, aside from trekking in the snow this week, what else have we have been up to, Delty-poo? Uh
0: The last things we did, I believe the last time we recorded was the day we were going to uh, Dakota's house for us, Dakota, and Brian to do our role-playing session. Wasn't that that Saturday, mor- or that Saturday morning we recorded?
1: Oh, my gosh. Has it only been like six days since we last recorded?
0: That can't be right. Is it two weeks ago? Was that before the last episode?
1: Are we recording a week early?
0: <laughs> We're not recording a week early. Uh, Are you sure? Yeah, I think so.
1: Hold this on. Is, hold on.
0: <laughs> We're doing it live. We're doing it live. <laughs> let me let me check here. Hold on. Hold on. I'm I'm a big dingus. I'm about me to be really
1: impressed if so.
0: It, no, it, it's not because it didn't come out this Sunday. Uh, let me see. Let me see. Let me see.
1: I mean, I I'm I'm still really impressed if we're not doing a week early because we're still recording uh three days before the release date. So gold star to us either way. We're
0: doing pretty well, not gonna lie. Uh the last episode was our episode on Seki Gahara, and that was on January uh twenty third. So it was two weeks ago because this okay. last Sunday was the thirtieth. <laughs> so, so yeah.
1: Delt and I haven't left the house much, as we talked about last episode. Uh, we both had COVID and Delton ended up being positive for another week after the last episode. So we literally have not left the house until he got a negative test. Then I officiated a quick uh, living room wedding and then we played Dungeons and Dragons with Brian the next day and then we went on a hike. So like that's been all we've been doing. So all of the days and weeks are running together because literally we were shutting our house for three and a half weeks. So it was quarantine all over again.
0: Yes, I don't I don't think I've had a full week at work. You haven't. Because I tested, uh, I was finally negative Thursday, which is when I got to go to work, and then I was at work Friday, and then this week was work Monday, Tuesday, went home early yesterday for the weather, stayed home today, probably will still be working from home tomorrow.
1: Yeah, so you haven't been to a full week of work since the first week of the year.
0: I think so, it's wild. That's crazy. It's legitimately feels wild, but yeah, so we had that role play session, which was very fun, I'm sure we, I guess we recorded before that, so... Yeah, it was very fun. We changed up the rules a lot, and by we, I mean Brian. Uh, he goes over them with me and gets my input that way in case I catch anything awkward, um, things like that. Had a really good time playing that, and then that Sunday morning we woke up, went on a hike.
1: It was beautiful. And so we we live in like the outskirts of Oklahoma City. We live in the I guess a suburb called Edmond. And you know when we went and visited Nick and Jennifer in Oregon back in August. That's something that I have been missing is, one, my friends. I love to see my friends. I was just texting, texting Jennifer earlier. Hi, Jennifer. Hi. Uh, but, you know, we missed our friends. We also missed the hiking. I really enjoyed going out with them almost every day, wandering in the forest. And I don't know if you knew this about Oklahoma, but it's really flat, and there's not a lot of forested areas. Um, but I discovered this app online called All Trails and typed in Edmond zip code, and lo and behold... There is a four-mile hiking trail in the middle of the city, by a trail around Hefner Lake that I have ran a million times. There was a four-mile forested area that I had no idea.
0: Yeah, so we have a lake in Oklahoma City called Lake Hefner, and is that where most of that area is their water source, right? Like the city water?
1: uh, North Oklahoma City's water source, yeah.
0: And people do what's not? It's not parasailing, is that what it's called? We have like the surfboard with the like the the parachute, and the wind picks you up. They do that on Lake Hefner. It's big enough for that. Yes, they
1: do that, yeah. Um,
0: If you go all the way around Lake Hefner on its walking trail, uh, it's a a 10-mile loop, essentially.
1: It's where I trained for the half marathon.
0: Yeah, a lot of people run it, bike it, walk their dogs, things like that. Well, just north of it, on a different road from the dam, just to the north of it, there's a little park. I can't remember the name of the park, but the actual hiking trail was Bluff Creek, and I think maybe there's two parks that are conjoined there, but Bluff Creek has a mountain bike trail that you can walk. Just be on the lookout when a bicyclist comes by to move. But it's a very awesome. It's four miles, twists and turns in the trees. There were birds. We got to see a mallard with a bright green head. Uh, Just walking through nature and going on a little hike that had ups and downs and roots and steps and big drops and things like that. Like it wasn't super complicated, but it was an interesting walk. It wasn't just. Flat concrete in a circle. It it felt like you were going hiking somewhere more interesting. So it was really nice.
1: It was really nice. And so, you know, if you live in an uh, urban area or suburban area, I really recommend downloading All Trails. It's a free app. There is a paid version, of course. But I was honestly surprised because there are a lot more nature trails and little forested areas around here that are mapped out for hiking than I thought. And so, really grateful for that. Had a wonderful little four mile hike, came home ate a cubic F-ton of biscuits and gravy, and just had a great day playing board games.
0: Oh, here's the door. Uh, uh. It's straight ahead. It's it's a game. So, as alluded to in my old-timey radio thing, and also the fact that, you know, when I post on social media and the title of this episode always spoils the game, I act like people don't know. (laughs) It's coming, you'll never guess what it is, but you've already read the title. So, you know, it feels like that. Today, the game of this episode is Food Chain Magnate. After our four-mile hike Sunday, as Haley alluded to, we came home, set this up. I took like 45 minutes to teach her the game. An hour. Or an hour, whatever. a long time. And then we set off on our adventure of being a Food Chain Magnate, I guess. Uh, so Food Chain Magnate is published by Splatter Spellin', Spielin, Spielin' Uh, Splatter spelling. I don't know how to say it in because in, it's from the Netherlands and the Netherlands speak Dutch, right? It's probably similar. There's just no I. S-P-E-L-L-E-N. Because German would be spielen. So right. spellen maybe. Probably so. Either way, Splatter is the publisher here. Uh, if you know anything about Splatter, uh, they are a very small company. They only have, I don't know, five or six games that they've published. They tend to be very expensive because they do small print runs. Uh, but... It's one of those things where this is a game I've always wanted, and Haley got it for me for Christmas. Uh, I've always wanted to play it, and we finally got to play it, and obviously we're going to get to that. The game is designed by Johannes Virsinga and Joran Dorman. The graphic design is by Jens Mott and Iris Dihan. And as I said, published by Splatter. Splatter is a game for two to five players. They recommend age 14 and up, and I think that I agree with that a little bit higher age.
1: But Magnate. What did I say? Splatter.
0: Sorry, Food Chain Magnate. Two to five players, 14 and up. Uh, It does come with an English and a German rulebook, and it is a two to four hour game. And I think that is accurate, because for us two, it was like two hours and 15 minutes with a few rules lookups. I think we could probably streamline to two hours, but uh, it's definitely a lengthy one.
1: It's probably 14 and up, because in Oklahoma, child labor law says you can work at 14.
0: Perfect. So Food Chain Magnate is, a, for lack of a better term, an economic board game. Because this is, it, it's, a surpri- it's a surprising thing for a game of this length and a game of this depth of play and this, like. seeing as many cards get laid out on the table, seeing as all that stuff. I've never had a game that goes this long that has no randomness. There are no dice. There's no shuffling of cards. There's no random draws. There's no random events. It is simply you and your opponent and your actions. That's the interaction in the game. The only randomness is what is your opponent going to do? So the game is very much an economic game. It's based around at the end who has the most money. You gain money by selling burgers or pizza or beer, soda, lemonade, to houses on the board from your restaurants. You hire, fire, and train staff in the game to make changes. You can hire different people to allow you to uh you know bring development to the neighborhood to add more houses, which means you have more business you can advertise all kinds of stuff like that and the s- game is going to function around making money and using collecting cards, playing them out each turn, and making as much money as you can using all that
1: yeah, as you're cultivating your staff as delton said you can uh, get workers, and those workers you train up. So, for example, you'll have the... For example, you can get a kitchen trainee who you can train up to be either a burger cook or a pizza cook who can also train up to be a burger chef or a pizza chef. And so you have these these cards that can train up to different positions, and some cards can possibly train up to multiple different posi- positions, and some cards just have one linear way they have to go.
0: So it's very much a game about uh, finding the path you want to take and also adapting to your opponent's play. So so for some more detail in the way that the game plays, you start off as the CEO of your company, which is a single card. So the game is very, very, very card-based. You start off as the CEO of your company. Every turn, that CEO allows you to do one hiring action. They actually call it something else, the action itself, Uh, recruit. It's a recruit action, but it's notated and spelled out as hire. So you can hire one person. There are a lot of cards on the table that can be hired for free. You can hire a waitress, a management trainee, a pricing manager, a recruiting girl, a trainer, an errand boy, a marketing trainee, and a kitchen trainee. All of those require no previous cards to take. They each do something at its most basic level except for the waitress who is a completely unique card to the game. That's the thing, the waitress never upgrades, it never changes, and it's the only card that does anything of its sort, which is interesting. But you can get these cards, so on your turn you can hire one, which means you get a card. And then on your next turn, you have your CEO card still, and then your CEO can manage three employees. So you play your new, let's say you got your uh, kitchen trainee, you put him down, it's now your CEO and your kitchen trainee. On your turn, your CEO's gonna hire another card, it has to be one of those free-to-hire carts. Then your kitchen trainee will produce a food, either a burger or a pizza. So you'll do those actions, and then your next turn, you can now, with your CEO, have your uh, kitchen trainee and the new errand boy that you picked up the turn before. So you're going to continue in that manner throughout the game. The, there are different managers. You have the management trainee, and he can upgrade all the way to executive vice president, HR director, or CFO, which have three different styles. Of uh, things to do in the game. But basically, if you hire another manager, they branch out and make your kind of pyramid of employees larger. So your CEO can always manage three employees underneath him. Any manager can be in one of those spaces and opens up more slots under them, but that's the furthest. So it's always the CEO, three managers, and then however many cards, depending on the level of manager.
1: Yeah, and I like to look at it like you're laying out your shift each time. Yes. So every round, it's who who's scheduled to work. You know, sometimes you're going to go heavy waitress. Sometimes you're going to go heavy trainee. But depending on what you need that round, whether you need to make a lot of burgers or advertise or expand, that's who you're going to put out that shift, whoever you need.
0: It is. It's very interesting because uh, I've seen this game described as a deck building game because you kind of are building a deck of cards that are your options and you're choosing what to play every turn. But uh, it really starts to get uh, a little sticky when uh, once you get the person who can train employees, which is the trainer at the most basic level, once you get a trainer that can train employees, you can actually take that. That's when you take that kitchen trainee and say, hey, you're now going to be a burger cook. Good job. You're a burger cook. You make just burgers, but you make a lot of them. Well, once you do that, you now have to pay a salary. So that person has required an upgrade in pay, which is outside the baseline and you now have to pay them at the end of every turn after you've taken all your income, done your stuff.
1: Whether or not they have been scheduled that shift.
0: Exactly. What they call it when you have a card, essentially that's like in your deck or you haven't used for this turn, they call it on the beach, which is hilarious to me. It's like they're on vacation. But if you hire a new card, it goes on the beach. You've got to pay for that card at the end of the round. So be aware when you level cards up, they require payment. And sometimes on a turn, you can't pay people, which means you fire them. We like to look at it as they quit because you're not paying them. But in terms of this game, you are the CEO. You are saying instead of trying to pay you, I'm kicking you out so I don't have to pay for that salary, which I only did once.
1: (laughs) I did not do it all. She didn't do it at
0: all. I had a lot more useless cards in my hand. But the card's very fascinating because I don't want to go into too much detail into the play because it's one of those games where there's so many possibilities and things to discuss. And, you know, you can you can basically make food. You can get drinks, which has its own thing. You can advertise with billboards, mailbox ads, a plane that pulls a banner, and then a radio broadcast. So you can advertise to homes, which creates demand. As long as your restaurant meets that demand, then you sell to them and make money, unless your opponents can undercut your cost enough that the people from their houses would rather drive to their shop to fulfill those needs.
1: Because that's the thing. You're not advertising your restaurant. You're advertising your product. Yes. And so being that, you know, whenever you you get a restaurant, you know, I had the pizza chain. Delton had. uh, I forgot what what your restaurant was.
0: (laughs) I don't know. Hang on. The names are pretty funny.
1: Names are pretty funny. Uh,
0: Because we'll still still talk about the theming and the setting of this game shortly. Uh, So there is Fried and Donkey. No, sorry. Fried Geese and Donkey. Golden Duck Diner, which I was the Golden Duck Diner. You were Santa Maria Pizza. There's also Zango Blues Bar and, uh, can't read it, Gluttony Inc. Burgers.
1: Yeah, and so the whenever you have a restaurant, the really the name of the restaurant is just flavor because we all made the same product, the same food. And so the thing is, like if Delton, which Delton did when Delton was advertising burgers or Delton was advertising soda. Lemonade. Lemonade. It wasn't just for his restaurant. He was advertising the product, which I also sold.
0: Exactly. So when I put a radio advertisement in the middle of the board and it hit every house on the board, they all wanted lemonade, which means Haley started making lemonade so she could get some of those houses to come buy from her. So it's a really fascinating game of you you are creating the demand for these goods and also adapting to the demand of goods your opponents are creating and trying to inch into their side of town on their market. And of course, you can open up to 3 restaurants throughout the course of the game. So you can have three restaurants spread out over the map. And at that point, it's a a price war. I dropped my prices a lot to compete with Haley because I had bad placement and I advertised right next to her, which was a mistake on my part. Uh, But I tried to cut my prices down, get them to come to me. Even if I'm making less than you would, if you're not making anything, that's a win on my part. And that's kind of how you have to play it. And that's the thing with this game. Without having randomness of dice, without having randomness of shuffled cards, everything's laid out. This game is a monster on the table. And we played two player. I cannot imagine playing this at a full five. Like you would have to really have some kind of card organizer or a, an easier way to truncate the full like set up on the table.
1: Which it took us about two and a half hours to play. Yeah. Like not including rules. No. And we didn't even really look up any rules. Like Th-
0: There was a couple, maybe 10, 15 minutes tops.
1: At most.
0: Yeah. So it's, it's a very in-depth game, but there's no randomness, which means, and this is a, my first big point for this game, If you make a mistake, it's on you. And that sucks because there were times where I was like, oh shit, I messed that up. That's going to be bad. And it was. There were turns where I did nothing for several turns in a row while Haley's raking in 30, 35 bucks a turn. That's huge. Uh, So it's very difficult. This is a game that is very unforgiving. If you mess up early and make the wrong decisions, you can potentially not have a chance to ever come back toward the end. I mean, you can really put yourself behind and in a very bad spot if you're not careful. So it's not a game to be taken lightly when you get into it. If you're the type of person who really wants to try and win, like if you're, you know, if you're like me and you get frustrated at stuff like that, this might not be the right game for you. I, I'm surprised after playing it how much I want to play it again because it is that kind of game where I feel like there's not necessarily a perfect first turn, but there's like three things on the, your very first turn that I feel like if that's not what you're going for, you've messed up. Like immediately I felt that way.
1: You need a waitress and you need to throw away food so you can get a refrigerator.
0: <laughs> Th- yes. So speaking of throwing away food and getting a refrigerator, thank you, Haley. There are some things in this game called milestones. Milestones are very interesting and I feel like this is what's going to make each game of this so vastly different depending on who all's playing. Milestones are essentially a first come first served achievement. So uh, example, the first burger produced. If you in your restaurant produce the very first burger, whether somebody buys it or not, if you produce it at the end of that turn, you, or I guess when it's produced, you will take the first burger produced milestone, which immediately gives you one burger cook card to employ at your restaurant. If anybody else also made a burger that same turn, they would also get that milestone. But after that turns over, Those cards are no longer obtainable. This means there are some things that you're going to get that others won't, some things other will get that you won't, and a combination of those depending on your play count. The one that I did was I placed the first billboard in the game. I went marketing very early. And what that did for me is I never had to pay salaries for my marketeers. And I also had eternal marketing. If I put a billboard up advertising burgers, it could not change the rest of the game. It's always advertising to that same house it's next to forever.
1: Got a 10-year special on that Lamar billboard.
0: For sure. But that's one of the things you have to look out for because that billboard was awesome. I had eternal advertising, right? But that means I was constantly giving Haley where she never had to advertise for a burger. She could easily just make a single burger, feed that house, make a little bit of money, and focus her attention elsewhere since I was doing all this advertising. So I've learned from that now. And that's something that next time I have to be aware of is if I'm advertising, it's got to be close to me unless it's a radio and I've got a good enough setup to kind of go, you know, out wider. Um, There's just it's really interesting because those milestones are critical. They're a little hard to keep track of at first, but they are things you have to be aware of and you must pay attention to those and try to get really beneficial ones early because if you don't, they're going to be gone forever if someone else takes it. And that's a very big thing. So the game's really interesting. It's very difficult to grasp onto at first because it's just kind of different. Like, I've not played a game that's like this. I've not played a game that has the same kind of uh, tech tree where it's, you know, you send this card back and give this other one because it's training. And it's just, it's very different. It's very complicated to have a good strategy. Not that the game itself. It's very hard to explain. The game isn't overly complicated, but the amount of choices you're going to make and the amount of pads that you can take is just gigantic.
1: The game is easy to understand. Like, whenever you sit down to play, it's easy to understand. This is what I do. Yeah. I collect my cards. I play my cards. I reap the benefit. But developing a strategy within the game is what's difficult. Like, you can teach this to easily. It's just you as an individual, finding your own strategy in the game might might take a few turns. And so Delton had mentioned uh, when we played it the other day that uh, those who have played this game before have a definite leg up against those who haven't played this before.
0: 100%. This is not a game that... I would not want to sit down with a table of veterans of this game and be like, oh, yeah, that's my second play. I'm excited to play with you guys because I'm going to feel like I suck at the end because they're going to know This card goes well with this card. You want to approach it this way. Here's how you're supposed to be doing these. That's for the most, you know, economical use of it. And it's definitely a game that you can improve at, you can get better at, and your experience will trump almost every time somebody new, if they have less experience. It's not that you wouldn't have a chance as a newcomer to it, but it's much more difficult. So one of the things, obviously, we've talked about here is the fact that this is a game where you're trying to be a food chain magnate. You're opening restaurants. It's fast food. And by the radio ad I put in the beginning of this and kind of the sound of the game in general, this is based in, uh, it's obviously a fictional, but it looks very, to me, 1950s. Is that a pretty accurate timeline?
1: I think so. It looks very 1950s for good and bad.
0: Yes. So we wanted to bring up this, uh, the artwork in the game. So in terms of, before I get to fully artwork, in terms of the graphic design, the game is very simple. It's not overly complex, which at first I was, you know, I've always looked at this game and gone, It really could look better, but with so much going on, I felt like it was still clear because of it. They deliberately made design choices that it's easy to read, it's easy to identify, and it's easy to understand where everything is and how it functions and what it's doing there. And if you added more artwork to make it prettier or whatever, I think that it would start to detract from the cleanliness in the graphic design.
1: It'll make it seem even more busy because it's busy enough just laying all the cards out in front of you.
0: I mean, that's the thing, right? If you look at Lisboa that we've talked about, you sit down and look at that setup and you go, I don't know what's happening. But you sit down and look at this, it's like immediate. That looks like a house. These are, that looks like roads. These are cards. There's some money here. Like everything pretty much makes sense to your eye. But in terms of the artwork, something we noticed immediately when I was setting up the game, I say I noticed and brought it to Haley's attention, because she was working in the kitchen, is that in the artwork itself, it really went hard into this 1950s stereotypical, uh, you know, United States fast food and also business kind of aspect. And in that, I mean, all of the managers are men. There's a single waitress. And the
1: waitress can never move up.
0: The people, there are some cards that may advance that are female cards. So, uh, for example, the management trainee can train up to be a luxuries manager. That's a female card. The pricing manager is a female card. Discount manager, recruiting manager, the HR director, those are all females. But also, listen to the titles you're giving, right? It's a very stereotypical look the local manager, nope, business developer, nope, regional manager, nope, the cfo, definitely not, executive vice president, nope, those are all men in the artwork.
1: And all white men. Everyone in this game is white. It feels
0: very very like it's one of those things where this isn't a historical take. For sure. Uh they're going for a stereotypical look and s- they are going for a like hyper hyper what's the term? Um
1: they're going for the aesthetic of the nineteen fifties. Yeah. Not the reality of who was actually working or know the reality of who who could move up, who could have moved up and things like that. It's you know, when you when you look at the cards, for example, the kitchen trainee can train into a burger cook. So the kitchen trainee is like a little teenage boy. The burger cook and the pizza cook are both women. However, the chefs are men. So when you train up, yeah. you become man again. And so I understand that what the aesthetic is, I understand that they're trying to go for like this, you know, 1950s generic feel, but the 1950s weren't actually all that much like that. They're going for for an ideal that didn't exist, an aesthetic that didn't exist. And if you're going for something that doesn't exist, why not have a little bit of diversity in it?
0: Yeah, that was something that we noticed right off the bat. And, you know... It doesn't detract from the game, I don't think, because in the end you could remove all the artwork and this game would be very easily reskinned to something else. Um, And also, though, that brings up the question that with how simple the artwork is in terms of the drawing and the graphic design, it also wouldn't take a lot to fix these issues at this point, right? This game came out, I think, uh, I got the box right here, Uh, 2015. It's been seven, oh God, seven years. It's been seven years. If they're going to do another print run, I mean, I'm pretty sure that the artist could probably go in and tweak some of these in a matter of, you know, a couple days, pay him a little bit, you know, not a little bit, pay him appropriately for that work, but it wouldn't take much to incorporate because it's not that complex of an art design in terms of comparatively to other games. I'm not trying to downplay the amount of art that went into this. I don't want yeah. to do anything like that. but Yeah,
1: a lot of work went into this, and a lot of work went into the graphic design. Like we said, the, the graphic design, the art is very clean. You know, it makes the cards that are very busy, easy to read, and easy to... Like, whenever Delton laid out the cards on the table, uh, whenever we compared those to, like, the player guides, you can tell exactly, okay, there's a lot on this table, there's a lot of cards, but I know exactly what cards can be promoted to which different spot. I know I can turn in this lower-level card for this higher-level card. It's very good. It's just like I said, it's it's create it's based on an aesthetic that doesn't exist. So why why just present the white person? Why just present the women in these, you know, customer service roles and the men in the development roles or the business roles? Like why? What's the point?
0: Yeah, exactly. If it's not going for a historical take, it it's I mean that's you've nailed it. Just why not? It wouldn't be very hard to do. You're not going for historical value. You're going for this you know, like me doing the radio voice. That wasn't an old radio. That wasn't some guy from the 1950s. Neither's this. You can change it pretty easily. Given, I will say this, and this is for me personally, so you might have a different, uh, be able to speak on this differently for you, and I would like that. But like, this is something that doesn't bother me as much as Istanbul, which I know is our big example of there are zero females in that game out of the 88 human being representational artworks. This one to me doesn't as glaringly stare I think because of the aesthetic they're going for, you know what I mean? It's a very, it's a tough one. It's a tough spot. And I don't want to downplay anything. And obviously, you know, how you feel about it, that's completely valid. And how I feel is pretty much the same way. It could easily be changed. But I don't think it necessarily takes away from the game in this case, where other games it does. But I also could see someone thinking that it does, like 100%. If someone didn't want to play this because of that, I would not blame you.
1: And so for me, like I still really enjoyed the game. I think it's a very good game. Uh I, I like the fact that if you make a mistake, it's on you. You have complete control over your business. You know, there's no luck involved. It's your strategy that plays. I just think it it kind of turns me off from the game that there is it's just so I think that the the art kind of turns me off from the game. And I think this goes back to what it's trying to portray, which is capitalism. Hey, what can I get you? I'd like a topic. Any special way?
0: Make it a top shelf topic.
1: Coming up. Enjoy.
0: So yes, as Haley just alluded to, we are going to dive into the topic coming off a of Food Chain Magnate. Uh, the topic today going to be capitalism in games. And I'm going to need another beer for this. As you can tell, though, by what we talked about Food Chain Magnate, I'll do this while we open the beer and get it poured before I talk about the beer. We both really like the play of Food Chain Magnate. It's a very, very good game. It's just a different game than I've ever experienced. I don't think I've played a game that's so, I mean, aside from like chess, you know, that kind of abstracted game, I don't think I've played a game that is so heavily dependent on just your actions. Like that is, the player interaction is the same. I don't know. It's, it's, just absolutely zero randomness at all in this game. Even in the, you know, I guess the only thing would be setup. The board is randomized when you put it out, and that's it. But even then, everybody starts with that same random element, and that's how you start. So therefore, it's not really a random element. It just helps for when you play it next time. There's no set. This is the best position for a restaurant kind of thing.
1: Right, and like Dylan said, I, I, I am the same way. You know, I, I like the strategy. I like there's no randomness. I really like that I won.
0: Yeah, you be- <laughs> you basically more than doubled my points.
1: And I never fired anyone.
0: You never did. I had to to make sure I saved money. But it is a very good game. But before we get into the topic here of capitalism and games, let's move on to the next beer. This is from Kokendorfer Brewing Co. out of Duncan, Oklahoma. Here in Oklahoma, this is a new company we have not had yet. Uh, this is their Imperial Stout with Cocoa Nibs. 12 fluid ounces. IBU is 29. 8% alcohol by volume. It says dense, thick flavor with a chocolatey finish thanks to the addition of cocoa nibs in the boil.
1: Ooh, you can
0: smell the cocoa nibs. I'm surprised they put them in in the boil instead of putting them in afterward during fermentation or on secondary fermentation. That's surprising.
1: Tell us, plebes, why.
0: I don't know why. I don't know how cocoa nibs would act. So when you put something in the boil, you boil the... So basically, you steep the grains like tea. You pull the tea off and you throw the grains out. And then you boil that tea that you've made. And the boiling, uh, basically, the boiling essentially, uh, does some chemical things to the beer, where it takes the proteins and like morphs them and does different stuff like that. Normally, when you boil, that's when you throw hops in in different intervals. You throw spices in different interval intervals. But a lot of times on beer, after you've done the boil and you get it cooled down to the right temp, you add your yeast, all that stuff, then you let it ferment. A lot of people will put stuff in during fermentation or on secondary fermentation, which is once fermentation's basically done and you move it from its fermenting container to another container, generally for just aging. Uh, you'll move it into that one and then put it. That's usually when it's going in, like bourbon barrels, or sometimes if you're gonna do a uh, if you're gonna do a dry hop, a lot of times that's after fermentation or something like that. So I was expecting them to do cocoa nibs after. But doing it during the boil, there must be something with the way that boiling wort kind of maybe melts those cocoa nibs out or pulls more flavor from them. I'm not sure. But generally, I would imagine it would be a later addition, not during boil. But here we are. I'm proved wrong. You can really smell the cocoa. It is black as night. It doesn't even let like light leak around the edges.
1: This smells like i am putting a piece of 90% dark chocolate in my nostril
0: that's exactly it's got that bitter dark chocolate smell mhm it's not as thick as i expected but it does have a bit of a creaminess to it
1: it's not as heavy as i expected either
0: maybe velvety maybe that's the term i'm looking for it's like it's not overly carbonated but it has more carb than i expected also
1: yeah i, I would say more velvety than creamy because it does yeah. have a little bit just a little bit of sharp just a little little bit of a that, little shimmer. that co2 shimmer in there and it tastes really good it's a very solid
0: style i mean eight percent too very solid it's not too sweet i feel like the chocolate brings a little bitterness in the aftertaste and i like that
1: it is also very drinkable for an eight percent this is not
0: this is this is scarily drinkable they have they had four other beers from this company um kokendorfer brewing from duncan oklahoma like i said this is imperial stout with cocoa nibs they had four other beers from them uh, we're going to have to try them at some point. So I guess look for those in future episodes.
1: And this is a really good beer that I am also going to have to put down for a little bit. So that way I can actually discuss the topic and the question of this episode.
0: Definitely. So to continue on to the topic of this episode, we wanted to talk about capitalism in games. Now, generally we all understand, and I'm just going to say this is basically the definition, capitalism is or presented as you are making something to sell to someone to make money. That's a very easy, I feel like, outlook on how it's presented in gaming a lot.
1: And a lot of it is, too, the, the harder you work, quote unquote, the yeah. more money you make.
0: Exactly. Something that Food Chain Magnate does. And I, I don't remember if I read this in the rule book, and maybe I did. I'm going to look real quick, but there was an interesting take on essentially the capitalist way that this game plays here in the r- rule book. And I wanted to see.
1: And again, this is the idealized capitalism. This is not yeah. the the capitalism we, we know and love here in the great US of A.
0: So uh, under their little like what this game is about, it says the focus is on building your company using a card-driven resource management system. The card-driven piece of the resource management system are people in this game. So with the parentheses included, the focus is on building your company using a card-driven human resource management system. And I think that really spells how... This game function is, yes, there's a currency of money, but the resource management aspect is people. People are your resources, whether you hire them, upgrade them, pay for them, fire them, organize them, use them. They are your tool to make more money.
1: This makes me feel really uncomfortable. (laughs) This is how the game
0: functions, though.
1: It's also how society functions. I
0: I think that that does lean into what they're going for thematically in that setting of this, you know, uh, I don't know, whatever 1950s era stuff, I think that the fact that the people are disposable in this game is definitely an an element of tie that that ties into that.
1: I think you're right. I, I, I like what you said there, because you can. You can just discard a card. You fire the person if you don't want to pay them. You know, and with like the waitresses, the waitresses bring in the most money in the game, really. and they can't be upgraded. The uh, females in the game are really much the the customer service side, and they don't upgrade very far either. You can't up like once you once you take a, a manager and you upgrade them to a luxury manager, they can't be upgraded again.
0: Basically, if a manager upgrades to something that is not a manager, whether it be you know the male like real estate agent or the female like pricing manager, once you leave the the main management track. You can never upgrade again.
1: And so I think this game does a really good job of uh, portraying capitalism in that it shows the glass ceiling.
0: <laughs> Maybe so, yeah, because the highest one's the HR director.
1: The highest one's the HR director. And that's <laughs> just
0: about hiring people or not paying as much in salary. Basically, yes. In the you have for management trainee, there's a single female, then uh, uh, instead of junior. Then if you upgrade from junior, there's a single female. Then you upgrade to senior. There is no female there. It's a guru and a regional manager. And then if you upgrade from the senior, there's one female in the HR. So there's only three females within the management upgrade cycle of the game. Maybe the recruiting manager also is a female. I'm not 100% sure. I'm not looking at the artwork right here. So maybe there's four in the total chain out of, uh, if you include the beginning, one, two, three, four, five, six, seven, eight, nine, 10, 11, 12, 13, 14, 15 of them. And I think there's four
1: that are female. And they're all that customer service kind of oriented side. Yeah. Customer service or training or like HR or human. Yeah. Human resources. Exactly. And so I think this, this game does a really good job of portraying, uh, we talk about capitalism, like I said, the glass ceiling, like there's not many positions open for women. There's definitely none open in the business side for the waitresses. They never move up. You know, women can be promoted to cooks, but never chefs. And so when we, when we talk about capitalism, this does a really good job of portraying that. And again, this, I love this game. I really like this game. <laughs> I really enjoy the mechanics of this game. I want to play this game again. This is just a gripe about the theme Yeah, for me. W- understandable. But, uh, but glassing aside, I think this game does a really good job of portraying capitalism. I think that a lot of our, our first experiences with board gaming and capitalism is Monopoly.
0: I think so. And even though Monopoly originated as a game to show the bad qualities of capitalism, uh, that is definitely a game that everyone has kind of grown up playing at some point with your family. Or if it's not that, it's the game of life, which is all about you have to get a job, and you have to get married, and you have to have kids, and you have to go to college, and you have to do all this stuff, and you have to hopefully die with enough retirement. You have and to reach that, all these
1: milestones. If that
0: doesn't scream capitalism, then I don't know what else does. But one of the things is is capitalism, It's we've talked about communism in games, but the difference is communism we look at in the gaming Side, it's always focused on the governments, right? It's always focused on how is this government working, and most of the time, it's focused on Russia, and Russia's notoriously a shit show in the government. So
1: Russia might be listening right now, Delta. That's
0: fine. Uh, so that's always focused on that. But when you hit hit a game like Food Chain Magnate or any other game that has this, you know, strong idea of you're going to work to make these goods and you're going to sell these goods, it's always capitalism from the side that we're taught it as people which is if you work hard and make money you'll have a good life and they take that into the board game if you work hard in the game and you make things to sell and make money you're going to win the game it's never about a governmental perspective which i also find interesting
1: yeah so like that so we talked about communism in episode 69 a we're talking about government when we're talking about capitalism here we're talking about economy
0: yes 100 it's very much the economic side of it and Being that we like Euro games so much that, you know, the Europe style game, they're very heavy economy games all the time. Not, not always super in depth, but they're always some sort of resource management, some sort of economy going on. And that is such a, a central like pillar of so many games that we play. And it's kind of fascinating to sit back and actually look and be like, oh yeah, it really is. Like that's, that's a lot of what happens in games.
1: But for, like, Food Chain Magnate and this uh, topic in particular, you know, we want to boil down that economy part into, you know, what are some capitalism games? What are games in which you are playing out capitalism? You know, I know I kind of half-heartedly joked, half-heartedly seriously talked about, you know, Food Chain Magnate showing the glass ceiling, which is present in capitalism. So the glass ceiling is, you know, whenever there's any kind of business, women can see others rising up, but they're kind of stuck under that glass ceiling. They can't go up further. Well, Food Chain Magnet is a really good job of portraying capitalism and that, you know, you are selling these goods in order to make money, in order to sell more goods, and you're building your business, you're building your empire. But there are certain things, and, you know, again, with the generic, idealized version of capitalism, the better you are at your business, the more higher quality products you serve— The more business that you're going to get, the more money you make, the harder you work, the more it comes. But in this game, that's not necessarily true because I feel like Delt and I both worked really hard, but I was kind of slimy sometimes.
0: You were kind of slimy sometimes. (laughs) For sure, I had such a hard time with this game because at at one point I was making nothing for turn after turn after turn. Then I finally started raking money in, and by the time I did, it was over. So something with Food Chain Magnate, uh, when the bank runs out of money the first time, you all have picked a card in the beginning called the reserve, and you add those amounts up because you keep it hidden from the other players. That creates a new bank, and once that bank runs out of money, the game's over. Well, what it doesn't tell you is once that bank gets filled back up, the game is going to be over quick anyway because at that point, you're usually at a at a spot where you're about to start doing a lot very quickly.
1: And so the reason why I say I was slimy is because, you know, we both start off, we build our business, we hire our people. Well, Dalton starts to advertise for his business. And instead of, you know, me trying to advertise for my business, I just try to take over his advertising markets. I try to get my food out quicker. So that way I steal his business rather than try to build up my own.
0: And it worked. It worked a lot. Um, but that's also how this game plays out.
1: And like the thing is kind of like with Monopoly, you know, we joke about Monopoly being a, a game that ruins relationships. And it's probably at the closest we've ever come to an actual argument. Yeah. Um, but with, with this game, uh, you know, as the game goes on, the more money you make, you're just going to like skyrocket. So, you know, if you get a leg up early in the game, kind of like in Monopoly, if you get a leg up, you start buying properties, people start paying you money pretty soon. Your income is going to exponentially go up and others can't afford to go around the board without going bankrupt. In this game, uh, if you are on top, I say by the time the first, uh, bank runs out, there's a good chance that you're going to be on top or near on top at the end of the game because you've already built up so many resources, you're already making so much money, it just makes it nearly impossible for the other person to catch up.
0: It does make it very, very difficult. And I think that's, uh, that can be one of the big frustrating things in this game because if you make a mistake or if your opponent just outplays you, they're going to win. And that's going to be that. And you're going to have to be fine with continuing for the second hour of the two-hour game Knowing, I've lost this, good job. I'm going to keep trying, though, which is what I did.
1: You should have just been born into a different family.
0: That should have been it, exactly. I should have had a different restaurant chain in my name,
1: damn it. Should have inherited some Apple stock or something.
0: (laughs) Yeah, for sure. So we have a couple examples of games that we think uh, sort of have a, you know, that capitalist uh, or capitalism style of economy in the game. So one of the first ones that we thought of was Preda porter from Portal Games. Uh is all about basically making fashion items, and the whole game you are uh, you know you're hiring accountants to help you make some money, you're hiring these different you know levels of people to try to have a, a, a essentially a better staff to work more efficiently than your opponents. And then you're going to be buying threads, buying clothes, trying to have to get those sewed so you can showcase them and sell them off for money.
1: And if you are behind early in the game and have to take a debt. You're going to have to pay back more debt than you took out yeah. as well. And so that, you know, maybe that can help you initially, but maybe that can also make it very difficult for you to move up as well.
0: Taking out a loan.
1: Taking out a loan, yeah. Because
0: yeah, if you take out too many loans, that's going to be a problem for you in that game.
1: And that will significantly not only affect your purchasing power, but also affect your score at the end of the game.
0: Definitely. One of the other examples that we thought of was Viticulture. Uh, something that Viticulture has, if you haven't played Viticulture, it's uh, Jamie Stone Stonemaier Games and it is a game where you're making wine, but it has, I don't know what I like to call them exactly, but essentially restricted worker placement. So each spot that you can place your worker, there's only so many workers you can place there. And I know a lot of worker placements feel like it have. I mean, Agricola, you can only put one, but some worker placements are, doesn't matter, put your people there. But anytime it does something like this, where if you're the first to go there, uh, the big thing with agri- uh, with Viticulture Is the first person to go there also gets the best benefit, because there are bonus benefits on the spots. And if you're first, you can choose the spot with the best benefit with with the single, generally singular benefit of you got there first. You get this bonus extra, and you're going to get to do the action earlier than everybody else. Uh, But then that's the same way you're going to collect these wines, grow these uh, grow the grapes, collect the grapes, you know, mush them into wines, and then sell these wines to make more money. And if you can make more money to then upgrade your stuff, you know, the same pattern goes and then you can end up being the person definitely coming out on top.
1: And I think that one is a definition or really an example of like that idealized capitalism. Yeah. where cuz in the game you're not I mean you are playing against other people but there's not really a, a sabotaging like in food chain magnate like I totally rode your coattails whenever you were advertising and yep. you no know, stole your business. In this one, you know you're the more that you age your wines and the the longer you age them and the more blends you have like, the better you are going to do, you're creating a better product, and so you're going to get more money. That's like the idealized capitalism, whereas Food Chain Magnate is like the, the real capitalism with an idealized theme.
0: <laughs> yeah, definitely. Another game that we have that's kind of along the same lines is Pipeline. Now, we've only played Pipeline the once. Really enjoyed it. It's just a hell of a game to get your mind around for me. But it's a game about producing oil, refining that oil, and selling that oil. And the market fluctuates. And if you can make your little oil engine be more efficient than your opponents, make the oil faster and sell it to that way you can sell in the market when it's high, make them sell when it's low kind of thing. You can work that system to where you can come out on top.
1: Ironically, that's another example. I think of like that clean capitalism again, like the idealized version, like I'm making a better product. I'm going to get more money. And that's where that strategy goes into.
0: Yep. So it's very interesting to see because it's, this is one of those themes that I feel like it's hard to talk about because they're not themes, one of the the kind of topics, uh, topics the styles represented in a game because a lot of this talk is just you're making stuff and selling it, woo! But there's something to be said about the fact that not all board games are made this way. A lot of board games, money's not even a currency at all. There's not a thing you're selling. And so that's kind of the first step there. But also the fact that there's so many ways to approach and differentiate between these different styles of an economy in a game and the amount of them that try to do a stylistic version. I mean, I guess in a board game, you kind of have to stylize something, right? It it can't all be extremely accurate. But it's hard to kind of uh, figure out a, a more specific way to approach it because things like Food Chain Magnet do represent where your advertising is making these houses hungry for a food. And if someone's selling it for cheaper than you, they're going to go over there. No matter if your quality's higher or not, they're going to go for the cheaper one. And it, it's very much a, I don't want to say a more realistic look at capitalism, but it is. It's
1: and like you said, they're creating the need.
0: Yeah, you are creating the need and then also trying to fulfill it in this at the same time. And it's all about undercutting your opponents to sell your stuff. To make sure you're the one making the money. And by the end of the game, like in the beginning, you're making $10 a burger, $10 a lemonade, $10 a piece of pizza. By the end of it, I was only making $7 a burger, $7 a lemonade, $7 a piece of pizza. And I've heard in some games, the price wars get so bad, you're making $2 $3 a thing. But if you're the one getting the money and it's not your opponent, then by golly, you're doing better than them and you're going to come out on top. So it's weird to discuss because capitalism in games is essentially economy games. In any game that you're making a good to sell, the, I guess the question is, why is that a theme or not a theme? Why is that a style of game that we keep seeing? Why do people keep doing that? Is it because it is familiar or is it because there is something that feels so rewarding when you're like, I did it. I outworked all your asses. I sold more than you. I, I figured out the system. Like, What is it that keeps people coming back to that style?
1: I think it is a lot of the strategy side. You know, this theme is really great for a board game, you know, outsmarting someone or stealing their resources or, you know, uh, stealing their business You know, as an actual economy. Maybe not as much all the time, but I was just thinking about this game. You know, this takes capitalism and really in order to win, you kind of have to play as like this dystopian capitalist. Like you, if you can't afford your people, you fire them. And that's the best strategy to win. You know, you have to outsell your opponent. Sometimes you have to do dirty things like building your business across the street from theirs after they've been advertising in this neighborhood for like five or six turns. You go ahead and build your business there and sell sell the exact same product. And it's cheaper for you because you're not investing in this advertising. Like sometimes you have to do dirty stuff like that. And I think now that I'm thinking about it, this kind of makes the theme fit a little more because. Doesn't it? you're, You're being a dirty capitalist who is really working to earn money rather than benefit society. And it's this idealized version of capitalism that you know is always said to be like the like if you work hard and you do your best and you make the best product, you're gonna come out with a top one. No, really, it's whoever has the biggest leg up, who has the best staff, who is able to, you know, take business from the other person that's actually going to do the best. And I think that kind of makes this theme fit a little more. It, it is kind of slimy.
0: It really does. I mean, that's the thing that I felt when I was playing it. And I think that's for me why uh the I don't I don't have Not that I don't have an issue with the artwork. It's why I the the artwork doesn't deter me from playing it as much as you mm-hmm. uh is because to me it is that these are these, you know, old smarmy white guys in all these vice president, president, CFO positions of the of the company. And you're the CEO, but that's the feeling of it is, I want you to make me money. I don't care how you do it. And it has that smarmy, slimy, you know, if your opponents are advertising burgers, well, by golly, we're going to make burgers and we're going to sell them at a dollar cheaper. You know what? You've opened a business across town. We're going to open up right next door. And it's like that kind of thing. It's like, oh, you're on that side of town. We're just going to put a billboard for lemonade, which we have the factory right next to us. Like. I feel like that's the thing is it has that feeling to it. And I think that they've nailed it. You can't say they haven't nailed that, but um, I I think that it does when you really think of that and think of also the fact that uh, the cards, the human cards are your economy in this game. Are you paying too many employees? Do you not have enough employees? Are they the right employees? Do you need to fire this one to then upgrade this one into a trainer? Like all of that stuff it uh, makes it feel gross in a way.
1: And I do like appreciate <laughs> it too that the CEOs, the managers get the biggest salaries with the waitresses bring in the most money.
0: Oh yeah, definitely. It's like the manager can have all these people underneath them and helps you out. Like the, the CFO card, uh, the CFO gives you a 50% increase on all your stuff you buy, but the waitress will consistently, every time you play her, bring you money no matter what. Where those bigger cards don't do that, they allow you to put more cards out. But it's interesting, so it's it's very fun.
1: And I hope that's what they are going for in the theme. You know, now that I'm we're kind of talking about it. Yeah, I hope that's what they are going for because that I think that makes more sense. That's a little more fitting and a, a lot less icky. <laughs> yeah, but it's it's hard to say. Like it, now, I'm like yeah. looking at it from like a dystopian lens. I'm like, oh. Maybe this does make sense, and maybe this theme really does fit. Maybe it's supposed to make you feel slimy playing this game.
0: I think it's one of those things, and this might just be uh, more uh, more so than written language, but this might also be one of those things of translation. You know what I mean? This is made by a company focused in the Netherlands. Something we have noticed, I think, as a board game community, and us, me, and you as content creators, is a ton of board games are made in Europe. All of those games seem to approach themes a lot differently than the American companies. And not that it's a bad thing, but it's just a different lens. And sometimes things like this, because fast food chains, all the famous fast food chains originated in the U.S., right? Yay, Sonic Oklahoma. Yeah, I can't think of any that didn't, but also I'm not super knowledgeable on my fast food chains. But that's something you think of in America. What else do you think of in America? They're all about making money and capitalism. What do you think of in the 1950s? You think of this overblown success. You think of this, look at me, I'm in a suit and I'm driving a Mercedes and I have a nice watch and I'm this fancy businessman when in reality how many of those people were like tax evaders and they were like, you know, all sorts of uh like just abusing their position at work in all different gross ways and like that's kind of it. So maybe Maybe that's what they were going for, but we don't know because maybe in the translation of what they were trying to attain with the game or trying to accomplish just was kind of lost coming to us where this is much more of a reality than it probably was in the Netherlands. You know what I mean? So maybe that's part of it. I don't know. I feel like we got away from capitalism.
1: (laughs) I feel like we did too. I feel like this was a good conversation.
0: It's capitalism. You can tell us this, listener, or you can maybe attach to this. It's hard to discuss capitalism in board games because it comes down to it's a game about making goods and selling them. And that's very difficult. But a game like this that starts to present these ideas a lot more literally because it's literally a game of capitalism. It's not a game using an economy system of making goods and selling them. This is a game of using an economy of human beings to make goods and sell stuff for money and maybe even fire them to not lose money. Like it approaches it from a a more direct pathway. So I don't know. It's very interesting. Capitalism, I feel like it's very hard to discuss in games, but maybe this is just the most blatantly obvious in your face. We're a game where you're a capitalist CEO making a, 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 a food franchise. And no other game has been that just blunt force in your face, slapping you in the face with a piece of cheese and a burger, you know?
1: You're an idiot sandwich.
0: I'm an idiot sandwich.
1: So I think what we can say is capitalism and gaming, you know, again, it's different than just economy because or it's, different than, it's different than economy. It's different than resource management. You know, it is. The thing at the end what we can say is capitalism is different than, just economy, because a lot of games have economies where you buy and sell goods. It's different than resource management, where you have to make sure you have enough resources to feed your people or make certain things. It is focused on the economy of the game. The object of the game is to make the most money at the end by any means necessary. I think that we can agree that capitalism in gaming is really fun for games, as evidenced by Monopoly, as evidenced by a food chain magnate, as evidenced by a predator, Porter and all these other games. Capitalism may even be really good for business. Is it good for people? No, because Delton fired people <laughs> in order to try and win a goddamn capitalism game.
0: Yeah, I had to make the most money and I was losing money on employees I no longer needed at the time, so I fired them instead.
1: How do you feel?
0: I feel fine. I still lost. <laughs> it didn't help. I would rather lose by a lower margin than lose by a larger margin, so.
1: See, I kept all my people. I didn't fire anyone. I just ran your company into the ground. You
0: really did and I you just nailed it.
1: Killed your American dream and yep. I win.
0: You, and you won. No,
1: not really. I was just
0: the second-hand place, like Taco Mayo.
1: <laughs> the, <laughs> I'm Taco you're, Bell. <laughs> you're the
0: Taco Bell, and I was the Taco Mayo. Half the people think I'm really gross. <laughs> Some people really love me. I've really only got one or two good items on the menu, but for every five Taco Bells, there's one Taco Mayo, and somehow it's still open.
1: You didn't go bankrupt. <laughs> I
0: didn't go bankrupt. With that being said, let's go to the question so we can wrap this long episode up. Oh no. Join us for a Malt House games podcast special by size question
1: So the question of the episode is what is the question of the episode no okay so we we kind of just came up with the question of the episode like 30 seconds ago because we forgot to come up with the question of the episode for this episode and the question of the episode is what is your favorite fast food chain Delty Poo
0: are we talking uh pre-vegan or as a vegan?
1: I say as a vegan Uh, as a vegan, I haven't been through an
0: actual fast food restaurant in a long time. Uh, but it was always Taco Bell because you could uh, get a bean burrito, no cheese, take out the onion because who the heck wants raw white onion in a bean burrito. And then I would add their potatoes and rice because I believe both of those were vegan and I think still are. So those were really good burritos. Uh, but then they messed up the same restaurant messed up like three times in a row and then one of the time, two of the times I had it, I just did. I felt like the food wasn't great quality. I felt like something had happened. It
1: was either old. It was old... $1.89 is what happened. It was cheap. Yeah, that's a thing. But
0: uh, so it was probably Taco Bell, I would say. How about you?
1: Sonic all the way, baby. First of all, still has car hops. Second of all, came from Oklahoma. Third of all, it is the only place you can get tater tots and a Route 44 cherry Dr. Pepper after midnight for less than $3.
0: So a Route 44, as we always call it, or a Route 44, it's a 44-ounce cup of whatever. I think it's 44 ounces, right? Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, It's massive, and they do have good cherry limeades. Um, I d- think Brahms is better cherry limeades, but I also found out uh, Brahms has a machine with a cherry limeade syrup. Where Sonic uses Sprite and then cherry flavoring, which is why they're different. Mm. But anyway, uh, yes, Sonic has very good 44-ounce size drinks. And if you order with the app, it is always half price. Always How far does hour. Sonic reach?
1: I know that we had it in Missouri. I know we had it in Tennessee.
0: I feel like it goes way further than that, but I don't know how far. It definitely originated here.
1: You get a dollar more per hour as a car hop if you roller skate.
0: Well, yeah, you have a whole risk of falling and dying.
1: <laughs> I would totally do that. Just like, I don't want
0: you on roller skates ever. <laughs> Your coordination is not good enough.
1: Hey, I had a I'm roller so skate sorry. birthday party at age eight. I can do anything. How did it go? I fail. I thought so. <laughs> it was a cat dog themed birthday. Oh, uh,
0: cat dog. <laughs> cat dog. <laughs> Nailed it.
1: We've definitely had some 8% beers.
0: Uh, and my what? mouth is starting to get dry as we've now been recording for... Is that an hour and a half? No, I can't read. Is that an hour and a
1: half? How long I have been recording for? I can't read that far.
0: That's an hour and 13 minutes. I couldn't tell. My I feel like my glasses need adjustment. I also, or it's also a tiny letter from far away.
1: I also feel like we shouldn't have been discussing capitalism after 8% beer. I agree. Well, just maybe in
0: general. I don't know. <laughs> <laughs> anyway, I think that's going to do it for this episode. Uh, I want to give a big shout out to our Patreon patrons. Thank you so much. Allison, Alan, Jesse, Catherine, Cliff, and Jennifer, thank you all so much for backing us on Patreon, supporting us and helping us out with everything. If you want to be like them and get shouted out on the podcast or get a shout-out tweet on Twitter or just check us out in general and support us in some way monetarily, you are free to do that at patreon.com slash malthousegames. If you want to find us on social media, you can at Malthouse Games. You can find me personally at Delton Brack. That is D-E-L-T-O-N-B-R-A-C-K. You can find Haley at
1: S-Q-U-I-R-R-E-L-Y-G-E-E-K. That is at Squirrely Geek.
0: If you have any questions, comments, concerns, a game you think that we should play for the episode and episode, a topic to cover on an episode, a question to answer, or a beer we should drink, you can always send us an email, contact at malthousegames.com. Don't forget to head over to uh, shop.malthousegames.com if you want to check out our t-shirts with our logo and different things like that. It is order on demand. Takes a little bit for shipping, but it's worth it.
1: Support our capitalist business.
0: (laughs) There there you go.
1: If we're forgetting something, blame it on the alcohol.
0: I don't think that was necessary. (laughs) At all. (laughs) But it's fine. At all. Yes. Uh, I think that does it. I can't think of anything else, even though I still feel like I am indeed missing something. But until next time, sit back, relax, grab a drink, and play some games. We'll see you folks later. Goodbye. Bye.